I have to be honest with you, most of the time when I'm on an airplane flying somewhere, I have a book to read and I'm usually just doing my best to devour that book. Uh, Not very often do I get a stretch of time where I can uh, just read on a book uninterrupted for several hours and so that's one of those times where I can enjoy that book uh, as I'm sitting in an airport and then getting on a plane and flying somewhere. Uh, I can just settle back into my seat and read that book. Most of the time, uh, the person sitting next to me is doing their own thing too. Uh, they'll be reading a book or they'll be sleeping or they'll have their headphones on and they'll Uh, be listening to music, or or maybe even they'll be watching a movie on their computer. They'll be doing their thing, and I'll be doing my thing, and we both seem to be happy about that. Just please share the armrest with me. (laughs) And I was on a flight recently, though, where things didn't go as normal. I was coming back from a missions board meeting with Central India Christian mission, and I sat down next to this fella on the airplane, and he immediately started talking to me. And at first thought, I I was thinking, you know, surely he'll run out of things to say. Uh, Surely this conversation won't go on real long, and I'll be able to get to my book. But that wasn't the case. He kept on talking, and he kept on talking. Uh, he asked me what I had been doing down in that part of the country. We were in the southeast part of the country, and I told him I was on a missions board for Central India Christian Mission, and we had been down there together as, uh, for a board meeting and talking about the ministry. Well, he wanted to know all about the ministry of Central India Christian Mission, and he actually had a connection with India, and he was telling me of his connection with India And after that, he wanted to know what I did for a living. And I told him I was a preacher, and usually when I say that, that's enough. Usually these folks on the airplane, they don't like talking to a preacher, and when you tell them you're a preacher, the wall goes up, and that's the end of the conversation, but not for this guy. He didn't mind me being a preacher, and he wanted to keep on talking. In fact, this conversation went on long enough and it became very clear to me through the conversation that God had orchestrated this whole thing. He had brought us together. This was a divine appointment. And I needed to lay aside the thought of reading my book. There was something more important to do on this flight. And so I submitted to God. I I remember just praying a prayer to the Lord silently as we were talking with each other. I said, okay, Lord, I know you want me to talk to this fellow, and I will do that. I need for you to guide me. And he did guide me. And there, there came a point in that conversation where I felt I needed to take it to the next level. And I, I, I certainly felt God's prompting in this. I asked my new friend what he believed about Jesus and Christianity. 
And that's when he dropped the bomb on me. He, he told me he was an atheist and he believed in the Big Bang Theory. And when he said that, I, I remember thinking, oh Lord, help me. Help me to defend the faith. And so we talked about that. And he seemed to be very open to what I had to say to him. I told him about another fellow who was an atheist who had set out to disprove Christianity. He was a newspaper writer from Chicago named Lee Strobel. I said, this guy investigated Christianity very thoroughly. I said, he was even a legally trained investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And he set out to disprove Christianity. And in his research, he actually became a believer. He completely changed his position from becoming an atheist to becoming a follower of Jesus Christ. I told him that he had written a book entitled The Case for Christ. And in that book was his findings from his research. And as I told him that, he, he seemed very interested. He said, really? And I, I said, yes. Uh, would you be interested in the book? I said, I'll, I'll buy the book for you, and I'll send it to you if you'll read it. And he told me he would. He said, he seemed kind of shocked that I would do that for him. And he said, yeah, you, you want to send me the book? I, I, I'd kind of like to read that. And so as the conversation went on, before we got off the plane and departed from each other, I had gotten his name and his address, uh, his email address and his mailing address, and, and I told him that I'd be sending him this book. And I did that. This last week, I got online, and I bought the book, and I had it shipped to David Barnes in New York City. And I would like for you to pray with me about him that as he receives that book, that he would be willing to read it. And that God would use that conversation that we had, uh, that seed that was planted, and that he would use this book to touch this fellow's heart. He was a very interesting fellow. He told me all about what he did for a living. And, and being from New York City, he, he, uh, he actually, I asked him about uh, if he lived close enough that he might would have seen the the Twin Towers back uh, in 2001 when they were hit by the airplanes. And he said, you won't believe it, I was actually in the shadows of the building. He worked downtown in a building right next to the Twin Towers. And he said, I was in the shadows of, of the Twin Towers when the airplanes flew into, the, into those buildings. I saw the second plane hit. So we, we had some very interesting conversation with each other. He, I may never see that fellow again on the face of this earth, but you never know what God might do in a person's life if we'll pay attention to the divine appointments that God sets in front of us. And I am so glad that day that I was willing to lay down the book and talk to that fellow. Jesus, in our text for today, had a divine appointment. We're in John chapter 4. I want to read to you verses 3 and 4 from that chapter. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He left Judea and went away again into Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. Don't neglect to see that 
phrase there, he had to pass through Samaria. He really didn't have to, but he chose to. And if you've been around the Bible or the church for very long, you know of the the problems between Jews and Samaritans. Most Jews, when they were traveling from Judea to Galilee, from the south to the north, Samaria sandwiched in between those two regions, if they were going to go from the south to the north, they wouldn't go straight through Samaria. Instead, they would travel around Samaria in order to get to Galilee because they didn't want to be contaminated by the people that lived inside of the borders of Samaria. They were half-breeds. They were not true blue Jews. And so those who were true blue Jews avoided them. They went around Samaria. It made the trip a lot longer, but that way they could stay clean. Jesus was different. He needed to go from the south to the north, and he made a beeline right through Samaria, and he was very intentional about it. He was on a mission. And that mission took him to Jacob's well in Sychar, which was a city there in Samaria. Verse 6 in our text says that it was the sixth hour. If you're reading from the New Living Translation, it defines for us what the sixth hour was. It was about noontime, the Scripture says. And so the sun was up high. It was warm. Jesus was thirsty. He had been traveling on foot for quite a distance. The disciples had left him at the well to go in further into town and buy some food for the group. And so here he is alone at the well, Jacob's well, the very well that Jacob had built and had given to his son Joseph. And up walked this woman from Samaria to draw water from the well. And according to the sources that I've looked at this week, it would have been very out of the ordinary for a Jewish man to talk to a woman in public. Jewish men didn't even talk to their wives in public, much less a Samaritan woman who was a stranger. That would have been totally unheard of. And add to that that Jesus was a rabbi and this woman was not a very reputable woman We'll find that out later in the, in the conversation here that is about to take place. And so Jesus broke every rule in the book. But we'll find out throughout his whole ministry, he didn't necessarily see it as important to abide by man's rules. But he did abide by God's rules, always. He abided by God's rules, not necessarily man's rules. He asked her for a drink, and it took her totally by surprise, so much so that she asked him in verse 9, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? She was shocked. In essence, she was saying, why are you talking to me? You're not supposed to be talking to me. You're supposed to be prejudiced towards me. But Jesus didn't have any prejudices. 
He had resisted those prejudices that seemed to hold everyone else in bondage. Rather, for him, the law of love ruled his heart. And his love for this woman, as he loved all people, he was trying to nudge the door open to be able to talk with her. Keep in mind, in two weeks, this is the second witnessing encounter of Jesus that we have been given front row seats to. Last week we were in John chapter 3 and Jesus was witnessing to Nicodemus. This week we're in John chapter 4 and he's witnessing to the woman from Samaria. And it doesn't take you being a Bible scholar to note that there are many differences between these two people. Nicodemus was an upstanding citizen. He was very high class, very educated, and very rich. The woman from Samaria, on the other hand, was an outcast. She was a nobody. In fact, that's probably why she has come to the well at the noon hour. Most of the other women of the city would have come to the well at an earlier hour before the heat of the day. But this woman has come to the well at an hour in which she wouldn't have to deal with any of the other women in the city. Probably she just didn't fit in with them. So she's avoiding them. And that's fine with her, and it's fine with them. Another difference between these two. Nicodemus was a religious leader, and you could assume that his moral life was altogether. But just the opposite is true for this woman. She has had Five husbands, we are told in the Scripture, and the one whom she is living with now is not her husband. She doesn't have her life together, morally. And yet Jesus has the time to talk to both of them. He loved both of them. The soul of Nicodemus and the soul of the Samaritan woman are equally important to Jesus. He has no prejudice against either of them. And I'm thinking in my mind, wouldn't it be good if we could lay aside all prejudices and just determine that we are going to be his mouthpiece to everyone around us? It doesn't matter whether they're rich or poor. It doesn't matter whether they're male or female, educated or uneducated, light-skinned or dark-skinned. We're just going to tell them the good news because they need to hear the good news. Everyone needs to hear the good news. Nicodemus, amidst all of his goodness, needed to hear the good news. This Samaritan woman, amidst all of her so-called badness, needed to hear the good news told to her. We all need to hear the good news. We all need this living water. That Jesus spoke about to her. He said in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God. And who it is who says to you. Give me a drink. You would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And he goes on to say in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water. Shall thirst again. There, You know as he says that. I'm th- he's right there at the well with the woman. He's no doubt 
pointing to the water in the well. He says, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. In other words, you drink the H2O from this water well, it won't be long before you'll be coming back and you're going to be needing another drink. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Please understand, we have this living water made available to us. And we need to share it with others. Wouldn't it be a terrible thing if you had a bottle of water and in front of you lay a, 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 a thirsty, parched soul who was going to die unless they were given a drink of water and you just passed them by? You ignored them. You refused to give them a drink, that which would give them life, and you refused it from them. Wouldn't that be a terrible thing for you to do? And yet that's what we are doing far too often. We have the good news given to us. We have living water given to us. And so many people around us are dying from thirst and we are refusing to help them. We are refusing to give to them what they need. The living water is Jesus, which if they will drink of that living water, they will never thirst again. And so many people are trying to quench their thirst by consuming other things. They think more money is going to quench their thirst. So that's what they go for. They think a, a higher position or, or a, a more power is going to quench their thirst. So that's what they go for. They think more stuff is going to quench their thirst or, or more sex or, or more entertainment. That's what's going to satisfy. So that's what they go for, but they find out none of that quenches their thirst. They're always thirsty for more. And the truth is, only Jesus will quench their thirst. He is living water. And we must share with Him, we must share with the world that which will quench their thirst. We must share with them Jesus. Dusty's going to come at this time, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about this conversation with this Jewish woman. In... Uh four verses in this text, the word worship is used ten times. And it's the woman at the well that steers the conversation in this direction. Maybe it's because she's embarrassed about how Jesus has just sized her up morally. Maybe she really wants to know about this subject of worship. But either way, this discourse on worship teaches us quite a bit about the intimacy that is possible between God and us. And probably the most important thing that we could tackle out of this today is what worship even is. What is worship? This word that's used 10 times is the very same word every time. It's proskuneo. And it literally means to recognize someone or something as having superior value. The word in our Bible is worship. Um, 
But perhaps a more useful word to call to mind is what Tim Keller has pointed out as the old English word that it was originally used. It was later shortened into our word worship, and you will see why, because the old English word was worthship, and it was spelled that way, but it was pronounced worthship, and that is extremely helpful for us. Let me tell you about worthship. You see, when we think of worth, worship, we just think of going to church. We just think of singing songs. But worship is something we do constantly, every day. Let's say your grandma gives you a set of jewelry. And you know, it looks pretty fine and, and it's nice, but it's old and, well, it's pretty. But you just toss it in your top drawer and you kind of forget about it. You're glad for the sentiment. But one day, for some reason, a friend of yours who's a jeweler comes over to your house. And for whatever reason, he happens to see this jewelry that your grandmother has given you, and he goes crazy. He goes berserk. He says, do you know what you have here? He looks it over, and he assesses it, and he says, this is incredibly valuable, valuable, unbelievably valuable. You don't know what you have here. These jewels contain precious stones that you didn't realize that were there. And this is obviously a, the work of a craftsman who's lived in the 17th century and his particular works are extremely rare and they, they're worth hundreds and thousands of dollars. What happens to you? Your entire attitude towards that jewelry changes. First of all, you would begin to admire it in a way that you never had before. The jeweler points out, your friend points out things you didn't see in beauties and certain settings and, and the way it shines and the way it's cut here and there. And you begin to see this beauty as you never saw it before and you begin to fill your mind with the value of this piece of jewelry. And then you don't just admire it, right? You begin to think about how this has implications for your life, how your life will be completely different now because this thing is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. What are the things that you could do that you wouldn't be able to do before? I mean, how will this impact you? Will you sell it? Will you keep it? Will you borrow against it? Will you charge people to see it? You don't know. And then, of course, you begin to change your behavior towards it, don't you? I mean, no longer does it just casually get thrown into the top drawer. No, uh-uh. Now, you begin to arrange the other parts of your life to affirm this new valuable thing. And the first thing you do is you go buy a safe, or at least you find one to put it in. And not only that, but the jeweler, upon further inspection, says, hey, if, if you'll just clean this up a little, and if you'll fix this prong a little bit, and if you will, it will enhance the value, maybe even double fold. And there's only one person in the world that could do that. And he lives in Switzerland, and it's going to cost you a couple thousand dollars to even have him look at it. Now, does that bother you? Just minutes before, the thought of spending $2,000 on this thing would have blown your mind. But now, oh, that's no big deal. What's a couple thousand dollars? Your whole attitude has completely changed. This is worth-ship. And what your friend, the jeweler, has done is he has led you in worth-ship. He has shown you the beauty and he has said that there's a reality here that exists in the midst of your life 
that you do not recognize. And because you don't recognize the value of this thing, you're not living properly in light of it. And you don't have the right attitude towards this thing. And you haven't realized the implications of it for your life. But as you begin to fill your mind with it and begin to comprehend this value, there is an awe that leads to joy, that leads to the change in your behavior, which leads to a major investment of yourself and all your efforts into this thing. And that's worth ship. And it happens all the time in your life. For example, maybe you inherit a piece of real estate. And you don't think much about it. It's not really a big deal. I mean, it's a small lot and it's a weird location, but some real estate assessor goes out to look at it and he comes back and says, you have no idea what you've got here. Uh, this, you were wrong. This is way worth way more than you thought. I mean, it could be worth $400,000. And here's the kicker. If you go out and you invest another $15,000, you might be able to increase it to half a million dollars. If you'll just go and clean it and do all do these things, it amount to about $15,000. So you must do it immediately. You scrape up all you can and you put in $15,000. Why? Because this real estate broker has shown you the worth of this property. Or maybe because he found out you have jewelry and now land, your stockbroker shows up at your door, right? And he says, guess what? I, I really know that this particular stock is going to increase 100-fold in the next three years. Imagine if that were absolutely true. What would he be saying to you? He'd be saying, you can't afford not to buy this. You have to get every penny you can get together, sell everything you can sell, convert it into cash, and put everything you can possibly get into this stock because in a matter of months, it will let you live like you've never lived before, and so you invest all you possibly can find. Everything you have, that's worth ship. Now, what are these people doing? They're coming to your life, and they're saying, surprise! And the surprise is this, that there's a reality in your life that exists, and you are not aware of its worth. And when you comprehend this, And let that knowledge change the way in which you behave. This new value will change your life. It will lead you to a complete change in behavior. And it will lead you to invest all sorts of your efforts in all sorts of new ways. So that you see what it's really worth. Worth Worthship. The jeweler, the real estate broker, the stock analyst. They're doing it all the time. Maybe you do it on your own too. Maybe it's this. You're standing in an excruciatingly long line. There's a monstrous crowd, and you're a little bit irritated that so many people are in line, and you're wondering what you're doing in line. It's such a waste of time. It's costing you something to be there. I mean, you have things to do, and you have people to see, and you have places to go, right? You have all of this stuff going on, but here you're in line, and so you're looking down, and you're a little irritated and mad, and suddenly somebody behind you points to the person in front of you. And says, isn't that him? Or isn't that her? And insert the famous person of your choice in the blank. It's Peyton Manning. It's LeBron James. It's Anne Hathaway. It's Adam Levine. It's Taylor Swift. 
It's somebody so unbelievably famous. You've known about them and you've seen them and you've read about them. You've watched them for years. And suddenly there you are. And you get up the nerve to say, hi, I love your work. Right? And they turn around and they are unbelievably courteous to you. And they strike up a conversation. And all of a sudden, I mean, you hit it off and you're top your conversation goes to your pinterest page and you find out that you know they're involved in making little crafts out of dryer lint too and and flowers and and uh you know all and you come to love lebron for that i mean um it's a great day and all of a sudden you see what happens where before you hated this time in this line you didn't want to be there now Oh, don't give me 10 or 20 or 30 minutes. Give me an hour. Give me two hours. I hope this line never moves. I want to be here all day. I want to share my whole life with this person. That's worth-ship. Do you see it? And so what is the worship of God? Worship is simply doing what you do all the time to almost everybody and everything else except God. To worship God means you take this dynamic of worship that you use in every other area of your life and except this time, the thing that becomes valuable is God himself. This time, instead of assigning a high value, you assign the ultimate value. This time, instead of investing much more, you invest everything. This time, instead of hoping for 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you share your whole life with him. Because if it's true that there can be diamonds and stocks and famous people that are of so much value in your heart that you would change your whole way of existing after your eyes are open to the reality of their worth, If that's true, then what about God? And this is what the woman at the well came to see. There is a progression that John writes about. He gives it to us in four titles that the woman uses when she talks to Jesus. At at the very first, when she meets Jesus, she tartly calls him a Jew. Because that's what he was to her. Just a Jew. Later, after he's kind to her and they strike up this conversation, he, she, her wor- his worth grows a little in her eyes and she addresses him more courteously as sir. And so he goes from Jew to sir. And you can see that his value is growing in her eyes. And then later, when she realizes his wisdom and his loving nature paired with this righteousness that he has about him, The title she uses is prophet. And so we've gone from Jew to sir to prophet. And then finally, when she ultimately realizes who she's talking to, she understands the true worth of the one in front of her. She goes to everybody and she says, could this be the Christ? Jew, sir, prophet, Christ. Her worth-ship has grown. And this new paradigm affected her so much that the text says she left her water jar at the well. That's exactly why she was there. 
to fill the water jar. But now it wasn't important anymore. And she leaves it there as if it doesn't hold any worth anymore. And that's what worship is. To understand the value of Jesus in light of everything else in your life and to let that new understanding change your beliefs and your attitudes and your opinions and your actions and your words. True worship changes us so much that even our water jars don't matter anymore. And after seeing who Jesus really is, like the woman did, we leave our jars at the well. And we are oblivious to that fact. We don't even miss them. Because what we once thought was valuable no longer holds worth. The ultimate value of life is no longer found in a jar, but in Jesus. Today, would you give him your worth-ship? Where does this story end up? How's, how, how's it conclude? Well, she's come to the realization of who Jesus is. And she goes back to her village, and she invites those who are living in the village to come back with her. She's saying, come see this man who has told me everything that I have ever done. Could this be the Christ? And so the village comes back with her. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. They want to meet him. And verse 39 of John chapter 4 says, Many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. You see, her testimony made a difference in the lives of her neighbors. It all started with one divine appointment. Jesus was willing to keep that appointment. He was willing to give attention to that appointment. And a woman then who was willing to share with others what she had found. And as a result, an entire village comes to know Jesus. This last missions meeting that I was at with Central India Christian Mission, Ajay Law told us a story of one of his students who had graduated from the biblical academy there in Demo. He had decided to go back to his homeland, to his area in which he had grown up, and he wanted to try and reach his people. Preacher's name was Feroz, F-E-R-O-Z. And in less than two years' time, Feroz not only had started a church in his own village, but he had also reached out to some villages around him, around that area, and started some churches there. And one of those villages, Ajay said, was a village that was quite known to the Indian government. Because it was a village where most of the people in that town were criminals and involved in criminal activity. To such an extent that the government had tried and tried and tried to get their hands on this this problem, but it it had become so out of control that they had just kind of written this village off, leaving them to themselves to just kill one another, I suppose. 
And Pharaoh's went to this village with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was so bold in his preaching. He was saying to the people there who were listening to him, the gods whom you are worshiping are dead gods. And Ajay had received this story later from Feroz, and Feroz was saying to him that very first sermon that he preached so boldly. Three or four big, burly guys just moved closer and closer to him as he preached. And he was pretty sure in his mind what was going to happen. He was pretty sure... He was going to get beat up. But that isn't what happened at all. As he offered the invitation to these people to accept a living God named Jesus. These three or four big burly guys that he thought was going to beat him up fell to their knees. And they said, we want Jesus. And in a relatively short period of time, Ajay said, every person in this village, 763 people, gave their lives to Jesus. Every person in the village. And there was such a change in behavior of these people, these criminal people that the Indian government noticed. Remember, this is a Hindu government and they're noticing the life change that has taken place and they began to understand why this change has taken place. And so this last Independence Day in India, they gave an award to Feroz for making such a positive contribution in the lives of these people in this particular village. And Ajay Lal hadn't really known this story. It, it wasn't something that Feroz had just told him about. And he got wind of what had happened and the award that his, his preacher had received and he, he got in touch with Feroz and he's saying to him, Feroz, why haven't you told me all of this? Why, why didn't you tell me about the fact that every person in this village had come to Christ. This is an, this is an amazing story. You should tell me these kinds of things. And, and Feroz just humbly said to Ajay, this isn't the first village where that has happened. This is the third village where every single person in the village had come to Christ. I want you to know Jesus is still in the business of saving entire villages. Souls are so important to him. He'd like to do that to Fort Scott. You know, there's a lot of people in this village yet unsaved. And Jesus would like to save this village. He'd like to save our town. 
And the only thing that keeps that from happening is the fact that sometimes, far too often, we are unwilling to share the living water with our people. Let's pray. God, help us. Help us to share the living water with the ones who are thirsty around us. Help us to share and even see ourselves the worship of Jesus. And that we can't be silent about him any longer. It's in his blessed name that we pray.